So in celebration of the 125th anniversary of our congregation and the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation on October 31, Joe and Katie and I are preaching this sermon series entitled Stained Glass. And our conceit, of course, is that the global church is a mosaic. It's made up of lots of little pieces. And if we were missing one of those pieces, the story would not be complete. So we're looking at what each of these traditions has contributed to global Christianity today Roman Catholicism, the Mother Church, and of course a signature text from the Roman tradition which comes from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answered, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or another of the prophets. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will will be loosed in heaven. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A guy by the name of Brian Doyle was my favorite columnist in my favorite journal, The Christian Century, until he died last May of a brain tumor at the age of 60. Brian's Irish Catholic piety was so charming and contagious that I was now and then tempted to rejoin the Mother Church. And Brian would tell us about his arch-Catholic grandmother who would launch into a diatribe against all counterfeit Christianities at the flimsiest of excuses. Take your Methodists, said my grandmother. They pursue a method, but not one of the poor creatures can tell you what it is or what it means, which tells you all you need to know about the Methodists. Same thing is true with the Presbyterians, bless their souls. If you ask them what is a presbyter, they stumble and stammer in the most abashed fashion and then return to making shoes or chipping tombstones or whatever it is they do. Similarly, your Episcopalians, who could not identify Episcopality if you gave them money or whiskey. And your Congregationalists, who are named for the way people sit in church. You might as well name yourself the Pew Sitters. And then consider the Lutherans, who are named for a Catholic monk. Or the Baptists, who are called because they take baths. Or the Calvinists, God help us all, who are named for a French Frenchman. The one true church... Holy and Roman, the church eternal, our mother the church, built on the rocky shoulders of St. Peter himself, watched over by his holiness the pontiff, steward of the bridge between divinity and humanity. She has a point, right? So what colorful shape does the Roman Catholic tradition offer to global Christianity? Why should none of us ever have left the Mother Church? Well, the first reason is that the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. 
right? Those are the four marks of the church. Protestants and Catholics agree about that. comes from the Nicene Creed. The church is supposed to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. But it's not, is it? It's not one, but many. It's multiple. It's fractured. It's splintered. Almost as soon as Martin Luther attached his 95 bullet points to the church at Wittenberg and told Christians that they didn't need a pope to think for them and that they should do their own thinking for themselves, that's just what Christians have been doing ever since, with a vengeance. Depending on how you count, there are somewhere between 1,000 and 30,000 Christian denominations in global Christianity. It's just splintered. Instead of seeing God's truth through one of these lovely stained glass windows, it seems as if we're looking at God's truth through a broken windshield, which is splintered and spider-webbed by a bullet or a pebble. The church is not one, and it's not holy, or doesn't look like it. About a hundred years after Luther in the 17th century, Protestants and Catholics started killing each other, and before the Thirty Years' War was over, eight million were dead. It's not one, it's not holy, it's not Catholic, which means for everyone, at all times, in all places. And it's not apostolic, or at least Pope Francis would tell me, my ordination is not apostolic. It doesn't descend down the generations from Peter to Gregory the Great to John Paul II to Benedict XVI to Pope Francis I. It is not apostolic. And so one of the reasons none of us should ever have left the Mother Church is the unity reason. There's also the faithfulness reason. That is to say, when you take a minute to look at Christian history, or at least Western history in general, it looks as if the Roman Catholic Church has a 2,000-year-old record of faithfulness and loyalty to the truth of God as it understands it. The Presbyterian preacher Eugene Peterson has a wonderful phrase. I love this phrase. Maybe you've heard me use it before. A long obedience in the same direction. When you stop looking at the Roman Catholic Church through the Mr. Magoo spectacles of John Calvin and Martin Luther, it turns out that the Catholic Church has been practicing a long obedience in the same direction. My friend Stephanie teaches early church history at Garrett Seminary down the road, and she told me the other day that when the Vandals sacked Rome in 455, Leo I, Pope Leo I, later Leo the Great, the first pope so labeled. Leo I was the one who essentially became, for all practical purposes, the emperor of the Western world. Civilized life was crumbling. Thousands of Romans had been shipped off to Africa to be sold into slavery, and it fell to Leo, later the Great, to feed and shelter and defend his folk. And so for a thousand years, with the exception of a few missteps along the way, like the Crusades and the Inquisition and indulgences and bishops who were often for sale, with a few exceptions, the Roman Church practiced a long obedience in the same direction. The Dark Ages were just that. They were dark indeed. But where there were points of light, where you could see, the Church had something to do with that. Yes? And so... Catholic nuns were the first in history to build hospitals in their convents and to shelter the despairing and the ill. And monks were the first to shelter the homeless in their monasteries and the impoverished, to feed the hungry. And so pick a name, pick a bright spot through the first 1,500 years 
of Western history until the Renaissance and the Reformation. Pick a name. It's likely that his art was in service to the church. Monteverdi, Vivaldi, Mozart, Beethoven, Saint-Saëns, Franck, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Caravaggio. These are all people who were serving the church. A long obedience in the same direction. So there is the unity reason and the faithfulness reason. There's also the liturgical reason. That is to say, Roman Catholic liturgy was set up to serve the pre- and the post-literate. See, this is the thing about Protestant worship. Don't you think they're just too many words? That it's just excessively verbal? You know, Martin Luther nailed his 95 bullet points to the door of the church at Wittenberg about 77 years after Gutenberg came up with the most important invention since the wheel. Literacy rates in Europe were skyrocketing. And so Lutherans and Calvinists learned to take full advantage of the spoken and written word. And so within days of his posting those bullet points, they were published as pamphlets. And Europe was papered with Luther's ideas. And the sermon, which had been about five minutes long, suddenly grew to be 90 minutes long. And people like you and me started reading our Bibles in English and German and French. This had never been done before. Nobody could read. And so Protestants live and die with the spoken and written word. But the Roman Catholic liturgy is way older than the printing press. It was designed to serve illiterate people, right? Thus, a room like this is a very Catholic room, by the way. This is not a Protestant sanctuary. It's this uh, stained glass windows, the split chancel here with the, the pulpit shoved off to the side and the altar back here in the center of everything. And so these stained glass windows, we call them the poor man's Bible, right? Because nobody could read a book. And so the church told its truth with colored glass. The poor man's Bible. It was a pre-literate world. But now we're here in the 21st century, right? 2017, now we are in a post-literate world. We once again want to communicate with images, not with words. We're all ADD. We can't read a thousand-page book anymore. We all communicate with Instagram and Snapchat. It's a post-literate world. And the Roman Catholic liturgy is primed to serve this purpose, people like us. There's this wonderful word in chemistry and in medicine. Do you know what the word multivalent means? An antibody is said to be multivalent if it has several surfaces or attachments by which it can attack the toxic antigen it was designed to destroy. Multivalent. If that scientific sesquipedalianism is too much for you, you could try multifaceted. There are a number of points of attachment for the believer to God in Catholic liturgy. It's visual. There's a lot to see. The stained glass windows, the snappy vestments of the priest gilt surfaces, ornate columns. There's a lot to hear, the beautiful music, the wonderful words of the liturgy. But it's also olfactory, right? The sweet-smelling fragrance of the incense is a sacrifice to the Almighty God, lofted to heaven. It's gustatory. You taste the host and the wine. It's tactile. You move. You touch the water of the baptismal font in the narthex on your way into the nave to remind yourself of your own Baptism. It's kinetic. You genuflect. You kneel. You stand. You come forward for the sacrament. It's multi-sensual. Now, I love being a presbyter. I love working on my 
long and hopefully sometimes thoughtful sermons. But just it's, sometimes it's just a little cerebral, a little dry, a little rational, you know what I mean? A little less room for mystery and splendor and glory and awe. That's what the Roman church has given us for 2,000 years. Have you ever been to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem? A bunch of us Kenilworth Union folk, Tim was there. Uh, last, about a year ago, we were at the uh, Garden of Gethsemane and we visited the Church of All Nations, which features a lot of the uh, things that I've been talking about, a lot of beautiful things to see. It's colorful, it's beautiful, it's gothic. But when we were in the Church of All Nations at the Garden of Gethsemane, we noticed that there was a little plaque on the wall inside the church. It says, please, no explanations inside the church. It was directed, of course, at the tour guides who were asked not to give their history lessons inside the church to their tour groups in a place which is supposed to be quiet and sacred. Please, no explanations inside the church. But we Kenilworth Union folks, we took it as advice for us who are Protestants at worship. Another way to say that is that in divine worship, our language should be more doxological than theological. Yes, we should talk to God rather than about God. That's what the Catholics are about, right? They don't talk about God. The homily is five minutes long and usually it's not any good. Don't tell my priest friends <laughs> that I said that. They don't have any time to write homilies. The priests are too busy. They don't talk about God. They don't want to explain God. They want to praise God. They want to taste God quite literally in their very being. One last thing and then I'll quit. One fourth reason, just two more minutes. There's the unity reason, the faithfulness reason, the liturgical reason. There's also the hagiography reason. Do you know that word, hagiography? Hagios is a Greek word which means holy. And graphos, of course, is a Greek word which means writing, as in biography, writing about lives, and hagiography, which is writing about the holy, writing about the saints. I love the saints. I love something to reach up to, something to emulate. And I want to tell you this one story about my favorite saint. Because I'm fascinated, I said this a couple of weeks ago, I'm fascinated by what kind of character and virtue are shaped by these various traditions we've been talking about. What beautiful human beings, or otherwise, do they produce? It's the same question you ask of other institutions, right? What kind of human being do you become after 30 years of being part of the Ku Klux Klan? What do you become after 30 years of living with the skinheads or the Nazis? What do you become after 30 years of listening to long but hopefully thoughtful Presbyterian sermons? What do you become after 30 years of praying the Book of Common Prayer? What do you become after 30 years of ingesting the body and blood of our Lord into your very being? So there's St. Francis, right? His life straddled the 12th and the 13th centuries. His father was Italian, obviously, but his father made millions trading clothing and fashions in Paris. Francis's father loved Paris so much that he named his son France. Francis's nickname, Francis of Assisi's nickname is Frenchie. And so he was a trust fund baby in his youth. He had more money than God. And he was something of a fashionisto, loved to wear the latest fashions. 
And they say he could throw a party better than the frat boys in Ann Arbor. And so he was enjoying this festive, joyous life and all these material goods. But then somewhere in his teens or early 20s, it just began to feel shallow and hollow. So he gave it all up and moved into a dilapidated monastery. One time the mother of two Franciscan friars came to the monastery where Francis lived uh, begging for something to eat. She had nothing to eat. And Francis asked the brothers, what have we to give her? And the brothers said to Francis, there's nothing here in our home for us to give her. And he said, well, what have we to give her at the church? And they say, the only thing we have at the church is our only New Testament. Now, in the 13th century, of course, books were very rare and very precious and might take a scribe a year to copy a book by hand. And so they would pay for a book in the 13th century what you and I would pay for a new car. And Francis told the brothers, give our mother the New Testament so that she can sell it for her needs. I think that our Lord and his mother will be pleased more by giving it to her than if we read from it. And the woman sold Francis's New Testament and lived for two years on the proceeds. What a strange thing this Catholic saint is trying to teach us, that it's more important to live the New Testament than to read it. That's the kind of life that is shaped by the Roman Catholic Church. She is the mother of us all and she deserves our respect. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.